Great, so we're in um, Hebrews chapter 8, that's page 1005 if you're using the Bible. That's Hebrews chapter 8. Great, so this is chapter 8, starting at verse 1. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers, on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbour and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. And thanks very much for reading the passage for us. Um, do encourage you to keep your Bibles open um, as we look at God's Word together. Well, in my preparation for today's talk, I, I went to um, a very well-known, uh, famous theologian uh, called uh, Eminem, also known as Marshall Mathers. And uh, as my research, he, I found out that he wrote a song called Guilty Conscience, in 1999. And if you heard the song before, it's about three characters. Uh, the first is a struggling dad, uh, just about to rob a convenience store. Uh, the second is a 21-year-old student, just about to take advantage of an underage girl at a rave party. And the third is a mechanic who catches his wife having an affair with another man and is just about to take out a shotgun to shoot the two of them. And in each instance, uh, before the act actually happens, a time freezes, and there's a dialogue that goes through the person's mind. Uh, one good and one bad. 
Well, at the end of the song, two out of three, uh, they justify the act and they commit the crime. Well, I'm not saying that Eminem is a theological expert of the human heart, but I want to suggest he's really insightful into the human experience. You see, what he's identified is that all of us, we have the conscience deep within us, a conscience that accuses us or excuses us. So it doesn't matter whether you are a 21-year-old student at a rave party just about to take advantage of an underage girl, or a 51-year-old banker just about to sign the deal for that dodgy deal. There's something deep within us that needs to be reckoned with. And here's my hunch, that a troubled conscience is one of the things that keeps many up at night. It might be guilt for moral failure, a relationship betrayal, or a deep sense of regret. Perhaps one or two of you might know exactly what I mean. And often when we are facing a troubled conscience, I think there are three strategies that we do uh, to deal with this conscience. Uh, the first one I think is to ignore or to rebel even more. You, know, you pretend that it isn't an issue, uh, you run in the other direction. Uh, you go to alcohol or you chase other experiences to numb the pain. Strategy number two, uh, we, we compensate. Uh, we do something good to ease the guilt. Uh, perhaps that's why uh, many white collar crimes, uh, those criminals, they tend to donate to charity. And amongst other reasons, uh, perhaps one of them is to ease the guilt. Third strategy is to admit, to fess up, and to change. And I guess we can appreciate why society hates talking about God. You see, whenever we speak about God, a perfect God, it increases the guilt. Many of you might remember 2008, um, the atheists, they ran a campaign on buses having this tagline, there's probably no God. Now stop worrying and enjoy your life. There's probably no God. Stop worrying and enjoy your life. You see, the talk about a perfect God that involves guilt, it induces guilt in an individual. It makes one worry. And perhaps that's why agnosticism or atheism is very popular. Uh, people hate talking about God. Uh, both religions have at its core strategy ignoring the guilt that comes from knowing God. And maybe that's also a challenge for some of us who may call ourselves Christian, who believe in God, because the issue of uh, troubled conscience is really tricky, and it's a common experience for many Christians that the more they become aware of God, the more they become aware of their own failure. And so that experience is the experience that creates a, a, a dilemma in chapters 8 to 10 in the book of Hebrews. Well, we have come to a new section in the book of Hebrews, chapters 8 to 10, and the big aim of this section is very clear, that the author wants his readers to draw near with confidence. I go to chapter 10, verse 19. Chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, Again, look to the verse 22 of chapter 10. Let us draw near 
with a true heart and full assurance of faith. You see, that's very clear. The big aim of this section is to draw near with confidence. But what keeps a person from drawing near, I want to suggest, is a troubled conscience. It's very easy to imagine a scenario. Uh, imagine if you are, say, deeply conscious about a sin you just committed, say, last night. Then I come up to you and I say, um, hey, uh, do you want to come up to lead the press for a time? The natural reaction from you would be to decline, uh, to, to say perhaps not this week, but next week. You see, guilt, a troubled conscience, prevents one from drawing near to God. Draw near with confidence, but how do you deal with the troubled conscience? And so for the next few weeks, this is the issue we're going to explore the issue of the troubled conscience. And if you ever felt and know what I'm speaking about, I keep coming back and I assure you, you will find answers to the conscience issue. Again, the answer to all questions in Hebrews is Jesus. Well done. That's right. It's always Jesus. It's considering the person of Jesus that will be the solution to our troubled conscience. But as usual, our author in the book of Hebrews is not trite. Uh, his answer is really complex, uh, really meaty. And so for the next few weeks, we will consider his answer. What does it mean to consider Jesus? And you've been joining us for our series so far. You know that the book of Hebrews, I've been saying that it's structured around the journey of Jesus from heaven down to men, his death and resurrection. But the next step in his journey after his resurrection is his ascension. And when we come to chapter eight, his ascension is the focus of our time. And so our author thinks that to deal with our troubled conscience, what you need to know is that Jesus, our high priest, has ascended into heaven. If you're following the handout, that's our first point. Jesus, our high priest, has ascended into heaven. I look to verse 1 of chapter 8. Now the point in what we are saying is this, we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Uh, do you notice the, the multiple ways the author emphasizes where the person of Jesus is? He is seated or at the right hand of the throne of God. He is in heaven. He is in the holy place, in the true tent. And he is the high priest who has ascended into heaven. And I wonder whether that's an interesting emphasis to be thinking about. You know, many of us, when we talk about Jesus, often we refer back to his historical death and resurrection. A Good Friday... Easter, the cross, and the empty tomb. And that is absolutely essential as we think about the person of Jesus. But to deal with our conscience, well, our author, he goes to the next step of the journey, the ascension. And his ascension on the cloud into heaven, but not just his ascension to heaven, but the fact that he sits down at God's right hand. And so it's really fascinating why he thinks that the fact that Jesus is in heaven, that is the thing that will help us to deal with our conscience. 
Uh, one need to notice that his locality continues to be the focus in the subsequent verses. See, also he emphasizes that the fact that he's in heaven, it contrasts being on earth. Look to verse 3. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and the shadow of heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect a tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you made everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. Well, in verse 4, uh, when he says, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all. I don't think the author of Hebrews is saying that Jesus, he will lose his priestly status if he comes back on earth. Rather, I think what he's saying is that it is pointless for Jesus to be on earth. Because on earth is where the structures are always a mere shadow of the heavenly reality. For those who are architects in the room, I imagine after 10 years of conceptualizing, uh, designing, executing this great building and it's finally complete, uh, it's pointless to bring your client uh, to see the 3D mock-up where you have the finished building right in front of them. See, the earthly tent, the tabernacle, was always a copy or a mock-up of the heavenly reality. So it was pointless for Jesus to be on earth. I guess that's another way of saying that, well, Jesus, he has ascended into heaven. And so I think this lunchtime is worth for us to pause for a moment to consider this reality. Uh, it is important for Christians to look back, to consider the historical death and resurrection of Jesus. But it's also important to look up, to consider the present reality that the resurrected man, Jesus, is seated at God's right hand at this very moment. Uh, Jesus, he is not just in history, but he's also in the present. Well, perhaps at this point you might say, that's great, good for Jesus, he's sitting up there. But what has this got to do with my conscience? How does his geographical location ease my troubled heart? And the thing to know is that only as he ascends into heaven does he, in the second point, does he mediate a better covenant. Look to verse 6. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. Well, the, the term covenant uh, really comes to the fore in the book of Hebrews in chapter 8. And it's a hugely important concept in the Bible. And maybe the best way to understand what a covenant is, is uh, if you think of a marriage covenant on the wedding day, where the bride and the groom say their vows to each other. They are sealed with a covenant. They exchange their vows, rings, they sign a certificate, and, uh, which are watched by witnesses. And so that covenant binds the promises made by each individual. And so throughout the course of history, God, he relates to his people through covenants, uh, two covenants made by God to his people, the old and the new. Uh, notice how he describes the old covenant right there in verse 7. Now, if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. 
Now you might say that's interesting. Um, is there fault in God's covenant? Well, in verse 8, he goes on to explain that the fault is not in God, but in the people. Verse 8. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, where I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I've made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in the covenant, so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. Perhaps you might have friends that you know who might have said to you before, well, if God were just to appear and prove to himself to me just once, I will believe uh, just once. Well, the thing about the nation of Israel, they had 10 occurrences of proof and maybe a bonus one where he parted the Red Sea in the Exodus. In the Exodus, 10 or 11 great acts to prove God's power. And our author describes there in verse 9, it's as if God is taking them by the hand out of Egypt. The image is like a father taking a child away from the cliff into safety. Now that is the description of how God rescued his people out of Egypt. And so the fault with the first covenant is not with God, but with the people. See, the people in verse 9, they did not continue in my covenant. The metaphor in the Old Testament to describe the people of Israel is that of an adulterous wife. They whore after other idols, God calls her back, and they whore after idol, other idols again. And why does it happen? Well, because there was no change in heart. Hebrews chapter 3. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as your forefathers in the rebellion. You see, the old covenant, it didn't change the heart. And so to deal with a troubled conscience, Israel had only two options to deal with it. To ignore, to rebel, to run away, or to compensate, to think they are righteous and think that they can make it back to God. It's no different from society today. Without a change in heart, we either rebel or ignore and say YOLO, or we compensate and be virtue signal. Well, but look at what the new covenant offers. Look at verse 10. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws in their minds, and I'll write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor, and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Well, the think about the old covenant, um, the think about the new covenant is worth chewing on as we head back to office. Uh, firstly, what do we have in the new covenant? Transform hearts. In the old covenant, the laws were written on stone tablets. Uh, you shall love the Lord your God your heart. You shall not commit adultery. Easy for all to see. Easy for all to obey. Right? Wrong. You see, their hearts were evil, unbelieving. They could not obey, just like all of us. But in the new covenant, God will write his laws 
into our hearts, into the very fabric of our wills. So we want to obey, not to rebel, not to compensate. And he has rewired us at the deepest level. Secondly, in the new covenant, I will be your God and you shall be my people. Like a marriage vow, a loving, permanent relationship. He is committed to make this work. How does it happen? Thirdly, they shall not teach one another, for all shall know me. See, to know God, not just know about God, but to know him personally, directly, intimately. The generation that fell in the wilderness in Hebrews 3 verse 10 is described as those who did not know my ways. But here, all from the least to the greatest will know the Lord. And lastly, how will God's people know him like this? Verse 12, I will be merciful towards their iniquities. I will remember their sins no more. It's the forgiveness of sins. Sins not remembered. Mercy, the definitive forgiveness of sins. He is forgiving, gentle towards sinners. He melts our hard hearts. He transforms our minds. And so if you have a troubled conscience, weighed down by guilt, tempted to move away, there is forgiveness, sins not remembered. Well, there are, there's more to say in the coming weeks, but here I think we've seen a start for an answer to a troubled conscience, the thing that keeps many of us up at night. It's a new covenant mediated by a high priest who is ascended into heaven, the covenant that binds us to God, the covenant that transforms our hearts, that God will take you to be his, that you will know him and you will receive mercy. That is the context of the relationship that you have with God. If you are my friend on Facebook, uh, you know that I'm not really active on Facebook, but every one, once a year, I make a post on the 5th of March. It's my wedding video, um, that of uh, me and Matilda. And when we were creating a wedding video, we were very keen to put short snippets of our vows in the video. I vow to love you. And so that's a reminder for us each year that this is the context of our relationship. This is the covenant we have made with one another. It's a yearly reminder of our vows. And of course, this is an imperfect comparison with the new covenant. All human marriages are far from perfect. We don't need Amber Heard or Johnny Depp to tell us. We know it from our spouses or our parents. But the new covenant is different. It's secure. It's mediated by our high priest. His location matters. The fact that he's ascended into heaven, not just his death, his resurrection, but also his ascension. It is, he is right up there interceding on our behalf. And so we can have full confidence in God's vows. I vow to change your hearts. I vow to be your God. I vow that you will know me. And I vow to remember your sins no more. The new covenant, the context of our relationship with God, a troubled conscience. Look back to your covenantal vows. There is safety, security, and forgiveness. 
And so we started this talk uh, thinking about our troubled conscience that keeps many of us up at night. And we can understand why when people hear about God, many run away and ignore. There's probably no God. Now stop worrying and enjoy life. And many compensate. I do good. I'm a good person. I give to charity. I protect the environment. The reality is outside the new covenant, there is no resource to deal with a troubled conscience. Ignoring or compensating is the only available options. But inside the new covenant, the context of this relationship that you can have with God is a new heart, new will, new desires, a secure relationship, and most importantly, forgiveness, sins remembered no more, mercy and grace. And so we can admit a guilt, we can fess up, we can come to him knowing that we are safe in this covenantal relationship. But there's more to say. It's all about how you deal with a troubled conscience in the upcoming weeks. So do come back for that.